We've been going through a series called Reflections of Splendor, and it's been great to do it. We've been looking at the Trinity, how God is a Trinity, three persons, one being. A bit mysterious to us, fair enough. God is God and we are creatures, creation. And the gap between us and God is huge at one level. God will come down to our level as well and communicate with us. But when we're just talking about being, I mean, we're human beings and there's little ants and there's trees and there's dogs and they all have being, their own being. And the gap between a human being and a tree is quite significant. A lot of difference in how we live and they live, though we both are alive and reproduce and things like that. And the gap between us and God is pretty significant too. And so uh, for us to sort of think of three persons and one being is a bit difficult. We're really clearly, being a human being, we're one person, one being, each one of us. Uh, That's okay because God's given us lots of insights about how he works, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's even given us in our very lives, in our humanity, some clues to how it all works and some ways in which we can learn from him how to behave ourselves. And that's what we're looking at today. So today we're going to be looking at one humanity. And in some ways this is aspects of what theologians call the doctrine of man, which sounds quite meaty, and it is in a way, but I'll try and make it digestible. Because we need to understand what we are as human beings. It is a profound and wonderful truth to realise that we, men and women, human beings, are unique creatures made in the image of God with unique privileges and unique responsibilities. You and I and every other human being on this planet, we are not the product of blind chance. We are not the result of a bunch of apes that got lucky somewhere in the meaningless battle of chance-driven evolution. Pointless, meaningless, no no plan, chance-driven, Survival of the fittest, somewhere a bunch of monkeys somewhere got lucky and we ended up a random result. That is not what humanity is. That is a lie. That's a deep lie that causes great destruction when it takes root in man's thinking. Uh, Let's look at a few verses in the Bible, simple, clear, poetic verses that give us some insight into our origin. Can you pop up Genesis 1 on the screen, verses 26 and 27? Thank you. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When you believe this, it not only makes a lot of sense about a lot of things, but it provides a firm basis for everything that we would consider noble and good about human beings. Things like ethics, right and wrong. 
Things like human rights, self-sacrifice, justice, equity, dignity, beauty, love. All of these things which we consider the high point are basically rooted in understanding this philosophical position of being made by God in his image. And I will briefly help you to see that today. But we actually, today, right now, in this part of the world, we stand in quite a difficult and dangerous time when that basis for humanity is being ruthlessly undermined. And once you deny humanity's status as being special, special creation made in the image of God, once you fail to understand this and, it, and, and its consequences, you depreciate human life. And it means you can do all sorts of things and think you're justified. Once you begin to see human beings as just another animal, maybe a higher animal of some sort, just a chance-driven evolution product of that, then you can begin to behave very differently, ultimately, towards people. And life soon begins to lose all meaning. In fact, that is logically correct. And it's putting your head in the sand not to follow that through. It does lose all meaning. And that breeds a mixture of despair and hyper-selfishness, which are the things that we notice in our culture today. So we are going to go back and look at God's good creation. This is the first of three points, and it's the longest one, just to let you know that. (laughs) Okay, we're going to look at God's good creation. The Bible tells us that out of all the creatures God made, only one was made in the image of God. Now, the words image and likeness are used in our English translations there in early Genesis about God's creation of us. And these words mean this. They mean, and it's quite important to even understand the detail, they mean something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents, but they also carry the sense that that thing represents something. Both are important. Men and women, human beings like you and me, we were made in the image and likeness of God. So with something that is similar to God, and yet also as God's representatives on this earth, we were to steward the earth on his behalf. We were to be his representatives, his gods with a small g, on this planet, looking after it and caring for it, and it would prosper and, and grow and flourish as we walked with our God, the God and creator, as his likeness, his representative, and with his image on this earth and to one another. Now, in a few moments, we'll be looking at the destruction that sin has caused to that original good intention. But sin has not destroyed it completely. It's spoilt that image. It's almost like vandalized the image of God in men and women. But it's not completely destroyed. So when you get verses like this, Genesis, you won't turn to it, it's not on the screen. Genesis 9 verse 6, they tell us, God tells us that to murder another person is the most serious crime you can commit. Why? Because men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. That's the reason it's given. It is the most heinous crime because men and women are made in the image of God. So it's not merely a crime because it's a horrible thing to do to a human being. It is a destruction of the image of God. It is a crime against God himself to murder someone. 
Then if you go to James 3 in the New Testament, verse 9, again, James writes and says clearly that all men and women are made in the image of God. Not just Christians or something. It's all men and women are made in the image of God. So to curse them and despise them is again an indirect attack on God. You must not do that. And in fact, James is very particular and straight. If you worship and praise God with your mouth as creator, but at the same time will curse other people and despise them, you are the worst of hypocrites because they are made in the image of God. And if you belittle people, you belittle God. Human beings are very precious and important. Let's try and dig into this. What does it mean? that we're made in the image of God. Well, there's lots and lots of things you could say which I'm not going to cover. If you were looking at this as just the doctrine of man, there's lots of aspects to explore. But I want to touch a few which are relevant to this one humanity. God made us as persons. That means he made us with a capability of personal relationships one to another because God is a personal relational God. And the Trinity is a relationship. It's three persons in relationship. A relationship full of love, faithfulness, honesty, righteousness. Now, God made us to be able to live like that with one another. Remember, we're going to see some of the damage in a minute, but let's talk about the creation. We are made for good personal relationships, much more than just breeding or getting together in clusters for defense or something that animals might do. This is much, much more. This is about showing love, showing faithfulness, showing honesty to one another. Being personally related to one another is part of a human reflection of the Godhead. We have, another associated point, we have the capacity for real love. Real love is what God means by love. God is love. He gives definition to love. He demonstrates love. And he demonstrates it, first of all, in the triunity of the Godhead. The love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for one another. It's a perfect love. It's a love which honors each other, which submits to one another, which sacrifices even for one another, or puts the other one first. Now, that love is a capability in the human being. Of course, animals can sacrifice. The maternal instinct of an animal can sacrifice. And there's some interesting and moving things. Sometimes animals look better than us. But actually, potentially, God has given us a far more profound potential to really love, which is nothing like the distorted uses of the word we often get used to. Deep, real love, like God's love, is a capability. Here's the third thing about being made in the image of God. We are made, made for community. We were not made for hyper-independence, for each one of us being a separate little unit which doesn't need anybody else, and the less people you have to need, the better, which is often how people sort of think life is. That is not how we were made. The truth of the Trinity tells us that God himself is a community. He's a holy community. And we were made to be in community. The one thing that God said was not good in his creation was when Adam was alone. He said, that's not good. Because that's something that's not even true of me, says God. I'm not alone, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make God, it's a plural pronoun, pronoun, let us make God in our own image. That's not good, Adam's alone. Human beings are not meant to be alone. 
We're not meant to be so free from other people that nothing touches us from them. We don't need them, they don't need us. That is not good. That's one of the results of sin. Actually, we're made and designed for each other. We need other people and they need us. Another thing about this image, God is unity within diversity. The three persons of the Trinity are not all exactly the same. They don't all do exactly the same thing. They don't all have exactly the same function. As I think I said when I spoke at the beginning, they don't wake up every day and say, who's going to be father today? The father has always been the father, the son has always been the son, and the spirit is always the spirit. And they work in harmony, they complement each other. That doesn't mean they give compliments, that means they work. It's got an E in it and not an I. They work together, they, they, they work, they complement one another. They work as a united unit, but they are actually diverse, there's difference. So unity is not uniformity in the Godhead. There are differences that are inherent and interchangeable, not, sorry, interchangeable, not interchangeable in the Godhead, but there is perfect unity and equality as well. And we are made in his image, which means human beings are not meant to be like sausages. They're not meant to be uniform. They're not all the same. There's huge variety. There's fundamental differences, some of which we'll briefly touch on. But sameness and unity are not the same thing. There can be diversity and unity and equality. That is how we were made in God's image. Let's keep going. God made mankind in his image, and this is an important fact, which I believe is true. We all came from an original Adam and Eve couple that God made. Here's a verse, Paul preaching in Acts 17, verse 26. If you could pop that up, thank you. Acts 17, 26. From one man... He, that's obviously God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. We all come from one original couple. All classes, all sexes, races, ages, types. You could go on whatever list you can think of of differences. There is a deep-seated biblical principle which is in the Christian worldview as well, of course, because it's biblical, that we actually all come from the same origin. Now, interestingly, there are some scientific things that would seem to point that way as well. Though, of course, uh, scientists come up with very different conclusions. But as I've maybe referred to before, I once watched a Horizon program called uh, Daughters of Eve, um, and uh, it was about how DNA testing of women worldwide, different continents actually, Far East, Americas, Europe, Africa, different colours of women, found that all of those women tested, and there was probably multiple thousands, I'm not sure how many, but there were thousands, they all had a common female ancestor, which was extraordinary. And of course there was no reference to the Bible, no reference to anything that I believe is what the explanation is. Instead of that, the rest of the programme spent a lot of time trying to show us how one particular ape man creature from North Africa survived and then managed to go with uh, various uh, there was whole maps and ideas and theories about how this could have been true but a more simple answer is the fact that all those women do have a a common female ancestor Eve (laughs) we all come from the same couple 
Now, you're putting two important things together. We're made in the image of God with a similar origin. This means there is, this is Christian worldview. There is a dignity and a value to every human life. No matter how poor, no matter how insignificant or weak or vulnerable. In fact, the more vulnerable, the more care is needed. That's why Christians can get so disturbed about things like abortion. Because every human being, in a sense, is fundamentally equally made in the image of God. Every man, woman and child from every race and ethnic group are fundamentally the same family in the broad sense of the word. So every human being should be treated with respect and dignity. No human being should be exploited or killed or abused or used for selfish ends of another human being because we are all made in the image of God. Now, this is going to be very important. What you need to know is what I have just said is not a, nothing to do with modern human rights. It doesn't come from Tom Paine's rights of man. It doesn't come from the American Declaration of Independence. It doesn't come from Rousseau. It doesn't come from humanistic philosophies of communism or socialism. It comes from the Bible. And it's always been there. And it echoes through the New Testament. And it echoes down history wherever you find real Christians. Actually, if you want the logical conclusions of Darwinian evolution to understand how to view man, you should look at Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche. That's far more truly, logically, ruthlessly along the line of where it takes us if we believe there's no God, no image of God, just blind chance evolution and we're animals in that struggle. Nietzsche's is pretty scary. He would have great contempt for any regard for the weak. He would uh, be talking about survival of the fittest. He would talk about a master race. Hitler loved Nietzsche and built much of his philosophy in a sort of way on it. Now, that's where that view takes you. When we have these other things that we think, oh, well, this is modern human rights, they are leftovers of a Christian worldview. We'll fast lose them if we lose the foundations. They've been stolen twisted and sometimes embellished in a good way, it's not all bad, but taken from a Christian worldview. You can go to other great civilizations or nations and look at a Hindu worldview and it will bring you to another very different conclusion, which may work out in a very different way of behaving towards one another. If you know anything about that, you'll know about it in the caste system. But the, the Bible tells us that we are all made in the image of God and we all come from the same couple. I love history. As you know, I, history and English is my big thing. I loved history. And I want you just to prove that, you know, because you can think all this stuff that John's just said, that's just how we modern, you know, that's rights of man. It's modern. No, it's not. I'm going to give I love this little phrase we're going to put up in a minute. Don't need to put it up just yet. I'm going to give you a little excerpt from a sermon preached in 1381. 1381. Who knows what happened in 1381? I daren't ask you that. A peasant's revolt in England under Wat Tyler. Good old English name. Peasant's revolt on what? It was a big move. What your many historians won't tell you is it came out of a move of God amongst Christians. 
And it was a reaction, a, a, a revolution against serfdom, against a form of slavery, a form of a view that all human beings were in a chain of value. This one at the top, and of course the medieval church reinforced it. I've got no brief to defend church through history, by the way. The church and its church, Christendom and various aberrations of religion have often produced horrible things. I'm talking about real Christianity. I'm talking about people who believe the Bible, who believe you put faith in Jesus and are born again. That's what Christianity is, not churchianity. And so we're actually, all through history, you will find it surfacing the truth. So part of the peasants' revolt focused around a lot of preaching. And there's a famous sermon by John Ball, which he preached on Blackheath. Here's a little quote from it, and it's in Old English, so I might have to translate it for you. If you go up. Put it up, please. When Adam delved, that's the next one on from this one, that's it. When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then a gentleman? Now, what he means by delved is when Adam was digging, that was digging in the garden. When Adam was digging and Eve was spinning. So when Adam was digging and Eve was spinning, who was then a gentleman? So he was saying, you know, where did this lot come from? Lords at the top. King's there, we're here, there, there, the chain of being, medieval chain of being, if you know anything about it. He's saying, no, that's not the Bible. God didn't make us like that. When Adam was digging and Eve was spinning, who was then a gentleman? And people will see that as a revolutionary thing, which it was. They'll see it as like, well, that's a social thing. No, this is centuries before. This is Christianity. Once you dig into the Bible, it always produces change. It always provokes it because you say, hang on. This is how we were made. We've got to do something about this. The basic point is, all men and women were created equally in the image of God, from the same source, and that has consequences about how we treat each other and how we divide up humanity. Amen? Blackheath, 1381. You heard it here. You haven't learned anything. You've learned something anyway. For the rest of it, lose the rest of it. Now, a very, very important part of this original design was the basic difference between men and women, the gender difference. Just moving on from John Ball. <laughs> and this has consequences as well. We need to understand it. It is a fundamental, non-negotiable part of how human beings are made that God made two complementary genders, male and female. God did not create two distinct persons. Sorry, God did create two distinct persons, male and female. He didn't create two of the same. And he didn't just leave one on his own. And God said of them both together, they reflected his image. Men and women are made equally in the image of God. And both men and women reflect something of God's image. You need both. If you've got a society of just men or just women, you lack something huge. You do not get the full picture of what we were meant to be made in the image of God. Complementary but equal. Together reflecting something of the beauty of God's character. Men and women are equally valuable to God. They're equally important. It is a fundamental creative fact that male and female both are equally part of the image of God. And therefore, there should be no room for pride or inferiority between the two sexes and the genders. 
There's no place for saying men are better than women or women are better than men or worse or whatever. We are together made in the image of God and we need male and female contributions to life to get that clear. And just as there's fellowship and community and sharing between the members of the Godhead, God made men and women to be in harmony together and to reflect something of his relationship. Now that aspect can come out in various ways in human society, but it is quite clearly seen, and perhaps most clearly seen, in marriage, which God clearly gave us. Marriage is not a product of the last 200 years or Victorian England. It goes right back to the beginning, to Genesis 2. Let's put up Genesis 2. Now, you could say, oh, well, I'm not sure I know how. Well, I'll tell you, whatever you know, this is thousands of years old when it was written. I believe it goes right back to the beginning. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out the man. He brought her to the man and said, this is how bone of my... And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, who she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Jesus reinforced it. Can you flick up the next one? Here's Jesus speaking in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, this is the son of God speaking, who was there at the beginning. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There's a fundamental truth here. Jesus is single. Paul's single. So this is not, not an upper and a downer on marriage. This is something much more fundamental. That when you get marriage correctly, you are seeing something of how two persons can be one and it reflects something of the Godhead itself. Something of the Godhead himself. It has ancient roots and marriage would not exist if there were no difference in gender. You cannot have a marriage between two people of the same sex. It is nonsensical. Sam Albury is a writer who wrote a book, Connected. Sam Albury writes openly about his own same-sex attraction, and he is a single man, a church leader. Sam Albury said this, I'm quoting him, same-sex marriage is an oxymoron. Now, if you don't know what an oxymoron is, I'll help you. A figure of speech that combines contradictory terms. It is nonsensical. That's why Christians get so upset and offended by it. It defies... No one is saying a man and a man or a woman and a woman can have deep emotional friendship. This is not rubbishing anybody. It's saying when you stray into that area, which our government did over the last few years, you are touching something very profound about God. You're touching something that is meant to demonstrate something about God himself and actually, we could add, God's relationship with his people as well. That's why it's so disturbing for us as Christians. It's not about uh, our views of same-sex attraction and how we help people and work with people and love people like that. Friends like that for years. When you talk about same-sex marriage, you are straying into a deep territory and it's unpleasant. And it defies common sense and it defies biblical sense. We were not made for that. 
So that's why we're strong on it and understand it. Let's go on to sins. These last two points are a bit quicker. Sin's total devastation. Sin has caused destruction and disaster in all aspects of humanity's bearing. Sin has just gone through the system like a virus. Now, actually, there is still the image of God in every human being. But what, what it is, is when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and said, we don't, were tempted by Satan, but they, they said, look, we made a choice. We don't need to check God for things. We'll decide our own good and evil. We'll, we'll decide what's right and wrong. We'll be like our own gods. That was the temptation, and they fell for it. And they turned their back on God, and straight away, a destructive virus got into them. Almost literally, sin. And within, I don't know how long, but straight away as you read it, they are divided. Adam is blaming his wife. There is division and tension. There's blame shifting. There's suspicion. And it gets worse and worse. By the next generation, Cain and Abel are brothers. Cain murders his brother Abel out of envy and hatred. Already, all the image of God is being cracked and broken and spoiled. It's not being lost completely. It's being polluted and vandalized at every level. You read the book of Genesis, and it doesn't take long to see things that should not be. Rape, bigamy, incest, perversion, murder, race hatred, greed, envy, adultery, abuse, slavery. It all begins to appear in the first book of the Bible. The Bible's not naive. It's like the virus gets in. And this one humanity is broken up by all of these horrible polluting strands. Mankind's rebellion against God has led to sinful behavior in a thousand ways, but particularly with regard to our relationships with one another. And we're all guilty. Here's a couple of verses from the Bible which spell it out. Romans 3. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage... Not at all. Breaking into Paul's writing. We have already made it charged that Jews and Gentiles, two big races he's writing about, races, alike, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Proverbs puts it like this. Let's put the next one up. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? Who can say that? Okay, some people would. But who can truly say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? Every race, every class, every gender, every generation are affected by it. All white people sin. All black people sin. All men sin. All women sin. All rich people sin. All poor people sin. All clever people sin. All stupid people sin. All straight people sin. All gay people sin. All old people sin. All young people sin. We are all sinners. There's something in there that causes tension and division and fraction and fractures and breaks and distorts. Pride, envy, bigotry, fear. There are multiple things. And they have caused mayhem in human relationships. We, because of Adam and Eve, we are all born in the territory they took us into. The dominion of darkness. And we all have shown our own aptitude for darkness. Quite early on. It's like if your parents were to emigrate from this country to Australia 
and you were born there, you'd be born in Australia, you'd be an Australian, you speak with that funny voice. Sorry, no, apologies. Apology. We've got funny voices as well. You speak with that twang. You probably, I don't know, wrestle crocodiles or something. You grow up being Australian. Our first parents came out from under the presence of God. They came out to the dominion of darkness, and that's where we're born. And we show an aptitude for it all too early on. But we're finishing up with some good news. Let's go on to the third point. Jesus' wonderful restoration. Jesus came to earth to save us from all the terrible consequences of sin. He came to deal with the sin in our hearts and the consequences of the sin in our heart. That is good news. Not only to do something inside, but to make it work outside as well. He came to restore us to where we're meant to be. Through him, we can be cleansed. We can be reconciled. We can be restored in our relationships between races, generations, genders, classes, etc., When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, our sins, as it were, were put on him. We are washed clean. We're born again of the Holy Spirit. It's a real action of God. And we are seen as being in Christ. We're immersed in Jesus. It's like we're baptized in Jesus. We're in Christ. And that is wonderful. Look at these verses, Colossians 3. Put them up, please. Thank you. Verses 10 and 11. Cuts in again, so it's a bit mid-sentence. And he's talking about what it is to be a Christian. Put on the new self, which is, look at this phrase, being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Get that. If you're a Christian, you are being renewed through your knowledge of what I'm preaching to you this morning, for goodness sake, but lots of other things. Renewed through the word and the spirit, you're being renewed in knowledge, what? In the image of its creator. You are being more like you're meant to be. If you are a full-on, Bible-believing, born-again, God-following, spirit-following, spirit-filled Christian. In other words, a normal Christian who's got it will be being changed from one degree of glory to another. And that will affect how you behave towards other people. Whether it be in marriage or in home parenting or work or towards women or towards men or towards other races or towards other classes or people who are not as clever as you. It will change how you behave. When Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote his commentary on Romans 5 and 6, he called it the spirit-filled life. Good name for it. Well done, Martin. The spirit-filled life. And those chapters are about how husbands behave to wives and wives to husbands. How parents behave to children, children to parents. How how a master behaves with a servant, vice versa. And quite easily, because of other parts of Ephesians, you can expand it to how races, Jew and Gentile, behave towards one another. And so on and so forth. And that's the result of a spirit-filled life. God will change you from the inside out. Here, in Christ... There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. That's revolutionary. That's why John Ball preached his socks off on Black Heath. Because if you get that, and I think he might have pushed it a bit too far, because you've got to be born again to enjoy this. But I don't know what he did. He just thinks he's a great guy. But, but, but he, he, he got hold of something in the Bible and began to preach it. And he set fire to some people way back there in 1381. And, and, and to be honest, this is stuff that is revolutionary. It has undermined slavery. It does break down barriers because it truly does. 
When you get it, we are all one in Christ. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's a wonderful redemptive work of Jesus to recover and restore the image of God, broken and distorted. Let's quickly flick up. These are the last two scriptures, both from the New Testament about the gospel. Let's put up Ephesians. Thank you. For he himself, that's Jesus, this is about Jesus, he himself is our peace. Now this is about peace between warring groups. This is particularly Jew and Gentile. He is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting setting it aside in his flesh Sorry, setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. I know it's wordy, I'm struggling to read it, but I tell you what it means. It means when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt with our sin, he dealt with our condemnation, and he not only saved you individually and me, he broke down the walls between us. We are one in Christ. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Wow, out of the two, thus making peace and in one body, that's Jesus' body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We are all still learning how to walk in this. Christians are not perfect. I certainly am not. But this is the truth we are working out by the grace of God, that we are one, that we don't look down on anybody because of their gender, background, education, the way they speak, colour of their skin. We are one in Christ. Amen? One in Christ. Now that does affect how we view beyond the church. Because we understand what the image of God is. I've been preaching it to you half the morning, three quarters of the morning. We, we know what it's meant to be like, so we can influence. But the only way it really works is when you get Jesus first then it should work out in our lives. It's challenging. Here's another one. Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That is fundamentally what it means to be in the church of Jesus Christ. There are no second-class citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. There aren't. There really, really aren't. Read your New Testament. It's not just about male and female. It's about poor and slaves and masters. It's about different races. There aren't second-class citizens in the church. We are all one in Christ. It restores us back to what sin had robbed us of. Sin brought a fundamental breakdown in human relationships at every level. It marred the image of God. It's like a beautiful painting that's been vandalised and someone's cut in it with knives and sprinkled, I don't know, ink on it. But the work of the gospel is a restoration work to restore the image of God in you and I. The image of the creator I mean, this is one, is this good or not? It's good to me. What a profound thing. God's bringing you, making you truly human. A sinful human being is not truly human. And we're all there. That's where we all were. And we're being restored to true humanity. Jesus has created a new humanity, a people who are reconciled to one another, where hostility has been turned to peace, where walls of partition have been broken down. 
Now, that true peace and unity can only come through Christ. And even then, we need to work on it. We need to let him produce it in our hearts and change us. But to be a Christian means that you are on this process of being taken out of prejudice, out of fear, out of bigotry, out of criticism, out of snobbery, out of inverted snobbery, out of race hatred, and the list goes on. Out into the oneness in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. To a place where there is equality and complementarity. You don't all have to have the same function. Another picture the Bible gives us of the church is the body. The body is, all the parts are equally important. They don't all have the same function. But they're all important. And and it's the same idea. We're talking about diversity and unity. Mutual love, mutual acceptance, mutual honour, mutual submission. And working it out. Yeah, we don't get it right all the time. We really don't. I know as you look back at it, I think, oh, I wish I thought that through more carefully. But we do know we're on a good journey with this. And this church and any church should demonstrate to the world what real humanity is like. We should be accepting of all. No second-class citizens. We affirm about the truths we believe. I've touched a few of them this morning. But we actually love and accept anyone. Come as you are. We look for the gospel to change us all. We're all on that journey. Whatever baggage we've got, whatever damage is being restored in this broken image might be different to your damage but but Jesus is working on me and he's working on you what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ here's the fundamental I'm ending on this the fundamental question every human being of any race any gender any class any ability any status any anything the fundamental question is this are you in Adam or in Christ And you need to see that is the fundamental identity question. Not about your your gender, not about your race, not about your uh, issues of same-sex attraction. These things are important. All of them got to be handled sensitively, carefully, thoughtfully, lovingly. But the fundamental issue about your identity is are you in Christ? That is the big one. That's what matters. If you're in Christ, we're one. Now, if you're in Adam, here's the good news. You can come into Christ. (laughs) We all started off in Adam. We all started off in the territory of the dominion of darkness. That's where we were all born. And we were all showing our aptitude for darkness. But we have been rescued through Jesus and transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light and love. That's how it's described in in Colossians. Beautiful, isn't it? Kingdom of light and love. So you were in the dominion of darkness. We all were. But Jesus has rescued you. If you will trust in Christ, put your heart in him, you come out from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that restores your humanity. Damaged though it's been, God doesn't rubbish. It's not like he takes the painting, says that's rubbish, throw it in a skip, let's paint another one. No, no. This is a precious painting. This is a, 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 you know, this is a Rubens. It, it's worth millions, but someone's vandalized it. We will restore this with love and care. That's how God behaves about every single one of you. That's why he saved you. 
He didn't say, forget it, let's have another lot, let's paint another painting. No, no, this is a one-off. This is beautiful. This is a work of art. I want it restored. That's God about you, whoever you are. You were made in his image. The image is scarred and spoilt by each other and by ourselves and by sin and by Satan. But he has saved us and redeemed us to restore us that we might be true human beings. Amen. Let's stand together and let's have the band up. Let's stand together. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to help us to to land this properly. I know I've said a lot of things, some of which are fairly sort of philosophical, if you like, in a funny sort of way. They're big picture stuff. And I want you to hear the big picture stuff. But what I also want you to hear is that every human being is precious. And I want you just to close your eyes and realize God knows you. He is big enough to do that. Just as he is so different from us that, that actually, you know, we couldn't really understand three persons in one. So God is big enough to be the creator, but also to know you intimately. Paul was able to say in the same sermon I quoted earlier where he talked about God making all men and women from one and God marked out the appointed times. The next verse said this. So listen to it. God did this so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. Just let that sink in. God is big enough to make all of us and to know every one of us which he does and he is not far from any one of you and he wants you to reach out and find him this morning